Welcome back to the Plowcast. I'm Susanna Black, Senior Editor at Plow. And I'm Peter Momsen, Editor-in-Chief of Plow Quarterly. Today we'll be talking with Brittany Petruzzi and Paul Buckley, who are going to try to convince you that you should be chanting psalms to advance the plot of the world. And then we'll be talking with Stephen Newby, who will talk about what it is that we do when we, as the whole church, black and white, sing spirituals together. First up, Brittany and Paul. I'm very pleased to welcome now our two guests. Brittany Petruzzi is a freelance theater artist who lives in Kernersville, North Carolina. Paul Buckley is the former director of worship and music at Grace Presbyterian Church in Ocala, Florida, and he now teaches for the Theopolis Institute on psalm chanting and um, other um, musical issues, and he's currently editing a Psalter for the Theopolis Institute. Um, Really pleased to have you guys both on, in part because I really wanted to introduce you to each other. And this is like, I mean, it's not that like we did the entire music issue so that I could introduce you to each other, but I'm very pleased to be able to finagle that. Um, It kind of surprises me that you guys haven't met yet because you're in a lot of the same world and you are both psalm chanting uh, aficionados, as you might say. It's true. I'm rather surprised also. (laughs) Um, Why don't we start here? Um, Brittany, you have a piece in this, or you have an interview that I did with you in this current issue talking about a um, project that you got started on about a year ago. Do you want to describe that project and the circumstances that uh, led up to it? Yeah, so the project is called Canticleer, and what I'm trying to do is to produce clear and beautiful recordings of the Psalms, mostly in chant, but also through composed settings, um, and doing those for the entertainment or enjoyment, I guess I should say, and edification of um, the Lord's people. Um, And it it came about because uh, I have quite a varied musical background, but Really, all those things came together uh, in this project when the Lord gave me the appropriate kick in the pants of of giving me a brain tumor the size of a tennis ball behind my forehead uh, that put me in the hospital over Christmas of 2020 um, and into basically all of that winter I was recovering from it, and it left me blind. So, you know, uh, lots of uh, changes. But what it did, I had this idea to, um, to embark on this project early in 2020 when Alistair Roberts started his uh, uh, daily Bible reading and commentary. I thought, man, somebody should totally do this for the Psalms. Uh, but it turned out to be, oh, super hard. <laughs> so I um, kind of put that on the back burner a little bit. And then, you know, when I was afforded the time by excessive you know, rest and recovery needed for having significant cranial surgery. Um, uh, I embarked on the project and the goal is to eventually get it to one Psalm a week. But as I uh, quit piano when I was 12, that is proving to be quite the hurdle. So as I practice, hopefully we'll get up to one a week. Now it's one every two or three weeks. And so just to let everyone know, they can find the Canticleer project on YouTube and it's spelled C-A-N-T-I-C-L-E-A-R. So if you just like search that in YouTube or search Brittany's name, P-E-T-R-U-Z-Z-I, you'll probably find it. Um, Paul, you have a sort of a, another angle on psalm singing. Um, you've 
this is something that you've been sort of working with for, as far as I can tell, uh, your whole professional life. But can you sort of describe the circumstances under which you got interested in in the Psalms and um, what it's been like to try to sort of bring those more into the life of the church, um, primarily in a kind of Protestant and Presbyterian context uh, today? I, I think that the first person um, whose work I read that talked about singing the Psalms, chanting the Psalms, was James Jordan, um, who was the, um, uh, along with Peter Leichhardt, the, the two brains behind Theopolis, but before Theopolis, its previous incarnation was Biblical Horizons. And <clears throat> this is something that, um, that James Jordan and his associates were writing about a long time ago. And uh, I didn't need much convincing. I hadn't heard it done, but I thought, well, that just seems perfectly obvious. Um, uh, God's given us a hymn book in the Bible. Everyone says that, but no one does anything about it, or at least no one was doing anything about it in, in, in the churches that I was um, the part of as a, as a denominational mutt growing up. But what he said made sense to me. And I think that the first place that I heard the Psalms and a lot of other stuff being chanted was probably at the uh, Orthodox Cathedral near downtown Dallas. The first Orthodox service that I ever went to was a Saturday night Vesper service. And um, the whole thing was, was sung. There was nothing merely spoken. I remember that the impression I had as I walked out of it that night was, hmm, so you can sing the Bible too, because so much of the service was biblical, not just biblical in the sense that it rhymes with Bible, but I mean, it actually is biblical texts being sung in addition to Psalms, um, the Song of Simeon, straight out of Luke 2, et cetera, et cetera. And that made a big impression on me. Brittany, your, your sort of experience with this is also a little bit James Jordan-y, um, I think. Do you want to talk about like what you were drawing on when you started your, your project? And I mean, not just that, but also, um, you know, you have a quite a bit of musical theater background as well. And the way that you described it to me, um, that and other aspects of your background also kind of all came together in this project and in the experience of chanting songs. Yeah, yeah so short version might be I'm, I'm chanting uh, chanting psalms in a musical theater style. Um, and maybe if I were better at the piano, I, I, it would be even more musical theater-like. But uh, I, I grew up sort of an accidentally covenant kid in, uh, um, in a broadly evangelical church with a Catholic grandfather who introduced me to musical theater through the 10th anniversary concert of Les Miserables, which, you know, for any 10 to 12 year old, you really latch on to, you know, Eponine's storyline, the, the, the deep drama of the whole thing, right? Um, and then uh, ended up in a uh, Orthodox Presbyterian church, kind of late junior high kind of time, um, bounced to Moscow, Idaho when I went to New St. Andrews College, which has a very robust um, musical culture. Uh, lots of uh, psalm singing, mostly metrical psalms, although now Dr. David Erb is um, 
adding some more through composition in there. And I did go to Theopolis, one of the earlier classes or intensive courses, I guess they called them. Um, and so got a lot of uh, Jim's sort of um, understanding of liturgy, how it should be sung or um, much more of it should be sung than we usually do, um, like Paul was talking about um, from there. But really, I, uh, I say that for this Canticleer project, I say that I want the recordings to be clear and beautiful. And when I talk about clear, um, a lot of that is coming from my musical theater background where, um, you know, diction is important and the clarity of the recording are important because a lot of what you see on YouTube doesn't sound so great. Um, but also I'm thinking of the clarity of expression or as we might call it in the theater, the action behind the words. You have this kind of sense of like, all right, so throughout the whole of, sort of the early part of the church, especially um, with monasticism, there are, there are these guys, there are these monks who are chanting this, through the, the Psalter on a constant basis. There's this kind of sense of the world being, um, you know, in a sense like upheld or um, tuned by the chanting of people um, who are dedicating their lives to this. I'm not saying that like, psalm chanting is like the engine that the world runs on. It's more like, it, it does kind of seem as though psalm chanting is or ought to be the way that, you know, God's, or one of the ways that God's grace, that God, that the Holy Spirit kind of like uh, is, introduces himself to the world, to the material world um, through our voices, through our breath uh, throughout the day. And then, you know, so that was kind of kicking around in my head. And then your interview, the interview that I did with you, Brittany, like the idea of, um, so one of the sort of key aspects of the history of musical theater is this idea that like starting with, what is it, like Oklahoma, um, mm -hmm. there was this new idea that the songs should advance the plot of the musical. It's not just like, we're all right, let's stop the plot now and then we'll have a song and then we'll pick up the plot with the book on the other end of the song. It's that like major changes happen over the course of songs, major plot changes and person, you know, and, and character changes. And I put that together or in our conversation, we put that together with um, C.S. Lewis's idea of prayer as something that God gives to us, like petitionary prayer, something that God gives to us to give us the dignity of being causes. And I just started to think about chanting psalms in particular as things that we do to advance the plot of the world. It's like actually the work that we do in the world to bring God's kingdom. And I'm really hoping that the two of you are going to do something together that will kind of turn more people on to that because I think we need it badly. I think the world needs it. I mean, I'm game for anything. Um, I, I do think that um, it's surprising the way um, that, you know, I, I'll say psalm chanting has shaped me personally, or even just knowing psalms has shaped me personally. And then the world around me shaped or changed, I guess, the world around me um, by having changed me. So a kind of weird example of this um, is that, well, I'll take Psalm 120 and then 103 as well. So 120, which is, um, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from whence comes my help. Um, that one was the first one that I thought of when I got my diagnosis, partially because I was a trail runner and the, you know, he will not allow your feet to stumble was often running through my head while I'm running down these 
rocky uh, hills in North Carolina. Um, but it was, it was a comfort to me to know that, um, you know, he, the Lord is, you know, my strength and my shield, not in that Psalm, but, um, <laughs> uh, that the Lord doesn't slumber or sleep. I'm always under his care. Um, no matter what happens, even if I die from this brain tumor, um, which was a great comfort to me. And also, uh, just because I grew up in the faith, very obvious to me. So it was a, a great reminder of something that I had known all my life. But then I would have all of these non-Christian friends just completely freaking out. And I could preach Psalm 120, or 120, 121, sorry. I could preach Psalm 121 to them um, and say, look, the Lord has promised to have me, whether you know the outcome is in our uh, estimation, a good outcome or a bad one, don't worry about it. Um, and so that's a very strange irony when you come under a serious trial that um, often the times you end up, you who are suffering the trial, end up being the one who is um, preaching Christ to others in that and in by comforting them. Um, and the Apostle Paul talks about that in Colossians 1 as well. But then with Psalm 103, um, which uh, Paul mentioned a minute ago, I uh, it's always been a favorite of mine, and um, I often use it <laughs> use it rather as um, a, a sort of a defiant uh, psalm when I am having a hard time saying "Bless the Lord, my soul." Um, when I'm having a, going through a difficult time and it's hard to praise the Lord, um, which is exactly what happened in uh, April of 2021 when I got the sort of the permanent new the news of my permanent blindness that it would be permanently blind um and you know i was <laughs> understandably upset uh but the first psalm that popped into my head was um a particular setting of 103 so not not a chant um but uh, my soul now bless thy maker which uh some great friends of mine in a cre church in pensacola they had kind of recorded one in popped it on YouTube. So I, I had that sucker on repeat almost all day um, as a reminder to myself that, yeah, this is a hard providence, but also bless the Lord for it. Um, so it, the Psalms are not only what they seem directly on the page, but they, they advance your own character arc in many different ways and thereby advance the plot of God's entire narrative. How do you chant um, the difficult psalms, the imprecatory psalms? I have not yet. Um, I guess we'll find out. But because right now, well, I mean, I guess I, I have because uh, there's tend to be imprecations within. So they're kind of like sandwiched in there sometimes. Um, I think the last one I did was, uh, now I can't remember what number it was, uh, but uh, um Oh, that's what, Psalm 70, where, you know, make haste, O Lord, to deliver me. And there's a section in the middle there of let them be ashamed and confounded who just dis destroy my soul, who seek my life, let them be turned back and confused. So it's, it's a, I guess, a lighter, <laughs> a lighter implication than let's dash those babies on the rocks. But, um, but it's still, it depends on the context, how I uh, interpret it, I guess. Uh, sometimes it seems that the imprecations are uh, almost against spiritual forces and not against physical 
Um, but even if they are against physical uh, forces, it's, I, you know, God gives us the words to sing about that and we should sing them. <laughs> so I do. And uh, if I may throw a little James Jordan in the mix, because he does this all the time where he'll just toss something out and not substantiate it. You have to go find it somewhere else where he has substantiated it. But um, I, I remember somewhere in the middle of some talk he was giving, he was like, Oh, and by the way, the, the, the end of Psalm 138 says, I think it's 138 um, says let's, you know, blessed is he who dashes their baby against the rock, not rocks. The rock is Christ moving on. And I was like, wait, huh? <laughs> so there is an interpretation where that is immensely salvific. <laughs> I just have, just as, as we, we wind up, um, both of you clearly believe that chanting the Psalms is important. And if, I would just be curious in in one or two sentences. Why do you believe people should chant the Psalms? I think that people should chant the Psalms um, because they should know the Psalms and sing the Psalms. But uh, because the you know as we spoke about it, it's it's God's hymn book. Um, but I prefer chant to. I think we should prefer chant to. Um, metrical or other um, paraphrases of the Psalms because um, it's not paraphrasing scripture. The Psalms are incredibly um, flexible. You can toss in whichever uh, translation of scripture that you prefer. Uh, but then I think most important to me is sort of the historicity of it. These Psalm tones that we have are, I mean, the church has been singing them for thousands of years, um, oftentimes paired to the same Psalm. A friend of mine was telling me that Psalm 114 has had the same, um, I believe it's called like the wandering tone, something like that. The same tone, uh, used since before Christ. Um, so that is just cool. I mean, it's not that, <laughs> not necessarily that, you know, the fact that it's old makes it morally better, but it's just really cool to think that you're singing the same song that um, Christians have been singing for thousands of years and that are, if we truly believe Hebrews 12, they're singing it with us every Sunday morning as we, as the heavens come down and they worship with us or we're brought up, however you like it to think of it. Um, but they're there present, the, the cloud of witnesses, right? A few years ago, <clears throat> as my mother lay dying in Texas, um, she had dementia. And I, I went to Texas in early July um, thinking I was going to find memory care. And um, long story short, it became clear within a few days that she was headed on a, a one-way street to the valley of the shadow of death. There was not going to be a U-turn. Now, um, uh, she knew who I was right up to the end. She didn't know, didn't know much of anything else. But she, when she had fallen and, and broken her hip, was going to have surgery there in early July. And the night before the surgery, I thought, you know, I don't know what's going to happen on that table tomorrow. And if I have anything to say, now is the time to say it. So I thanked her for some things, you know, just trends in my life and, you know, what, what she had meant. And then I thought, you know, what I should really do now is sing a psalm. Well, we're right outside, the room is right outside the nurse's station. And I realize 
I mean, as much as I believe in all this, I mean, I don't consider myself any kind of soloist. And if I sit here and chant a psalm, these nurses and other people are going to hear. And I thought, you know, the day's going to come where I'm going to look back at this moment and say, I'm not going to say, gosh, I wish I had not sung to my mom on her deathbed. Um, so that's how I came to the courage to chant Psalm 23 over her. And she kind of half joined in because, I mean, she's of a generation that, that certainly memorized that, not with the psalm tone, little simplified psalm tone, but she knew the song. So um, went through the surgery. Uh, it became clear after this, she's going to die. So I resolved, I'm going to do evening prayer over her every, every night. So what did I do? Um, I did what I did, I did from memory. Um, now, I don't think any sin would have been involved if I'd had a prayer book there to open up. But you see, because everything I had was here and here, I'm free to hold her hand and to lay hands on her as I do this each night. Excruciating. But I, <clears throat> I did um, at least these psalms every night for those six weeks. Psalm 51, which I chanted over her. Uh, Psalm 103. And often Psalm 25. This is the language of Mount Zion. And um, it's if we, if we have forgotten how to speak it, hear it, sing it, and so forth, it, it needs to be reclaimed. Thank you very much. That's wonderful. And now, welcome to Stephen Newby. Stephen Michael Newby is the director for the Center for African American Worship Studies at Trevecca Nazarene University in Nashville, Tennessee. And he's the Minister of Worship at Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Atlanta and a professor of music at Seattle Pacific University. Welcome, Stephen. So we're so glad to have you on the Plowcast uh, to talk about your article in the music issue of Plow. Uh, Go Tell It on the Mountain. And there you speak about why black spirituals aren't just for black churches. They should be sung by everyone. And you, uh, of course, practice that as well. Uh, could you just start off, though, uh, by telling us a little bit about one of the stories that you begin your article with? And you're standing in a cemetery in Jones County, uh, Georgia. And uh, kind of tell us what you were doing there and, and what that has to do with, with spirituals. Legacy. Tradition. Thinking about one's history. Um, I was at this cemetery in Jones County, the Newby Mitchell Cemetery. <laughs> I was looking for my ancestors and I found these stones on the ground and I was assuming that those were my ancestors. Unmarked graves in the corner of the cemetery, okay? And I, I spent about a day and a half really trying to find out where the cemetery was. So I went to the, to the archives, I was digging in, went to the library and then found this place. And then I get to this part in the cemetery was absolutely stunning. And Daniel Newby 
the guy who had enslaved my ancestors had this big tombstone. I'm looking at it thinking, wow, oh my goodness. Because I'd been reading about, I just read through his will and uh, he, he had enslaved uh, my grandfather, six generations removed and his name is, was Michael. And I stood there, not even breathing. It was so quiet. The mosquitoes weren't even buzzing. And I, and this silent voice, the spirit came on me and said, be reconciled. And I knew what it was. Because what I was looking for, I was looking for my ancestors and I was, um, and I found not only, I think where my ancestors are buried, but I found where their, um, the one who had enslaved them had been buried. And I hadn't even realized that how much pain I, I had buried myself in this process of digging and trying to find, uh, trying to find something that I didn't know what I was going to find. As a matter of fact, the spirit even told me, why are you seeking death, you know, living things among the dead, <laughs> you know? And if you, if you wanna seek things that are living, let me tell you what's living reconciliation, peace, love, hope, soul, you know, that's good for your soul. This, these are things that are living, go after that. And I just, wow, it had really, it really uh, messed with my spirit, rocked my world for a minute. And the two hour drive back to Atlanta, I, I did a lot of thinking. And a couple of days later, I meet Richard Conwisher, who invited me to join the staff of Peachtree Presbyterian Church, which is a predominantly white congregation in the South, in Buckhead. And I said, oh my goodness, God, what are you doing? What's going on? And all my life, I've been, all my musical life, I've really been doing this work with with reconciliation uh, the majority of my life. And, but to feel something that's so personally connected to your own narrative, it's not like you, it's not as if you get to this fork in this road, but you, you, you begin to think, okay, do you really, are you really interested in this work? at the deep core gut level, are you really interested in this work? Are you really, really gonna believe what you've been singing? Do you really want people to come together? Well, if you want people to come together, you've got to deal with your own story. And a lot of black folks don't have the capacity or the tools to deal with their own story. And a whole lot of white people don't either. They don't have the emotional energy to realize that their parents or their ancestors had enslaved others. They don't even think about it. Some people don't even think. 
And so I went through this process of discovering my story, realizing and part of the part of the process for us as humans is that we need to pay attention to our own stories and peel back the layers of that stinky onion, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And that which is absolutely disgusting and let the healing waters of the Holy Spirit give us a new identity and baptize us because we all bleed red. You know, these, these, the spirituals that you write about in your piece, they demand that kind of honesty that you're talking about, actually. Absolutely. With, with, <laughs> absolutely. See, you know, there's, there's not all these fancy lyrics, <laughs> you know, oh, you know, you, you, Jesus, I love you with a sloppy wet kiss. No, that's not there. You're not going to find that in the spirituals. You know, you have to relate to the principal characters in the spirit. Like, are you Pharaoh? Are you Moses? Did you cross the Red Sea or did you drown in it? You have to deal with the, you have to deal with the text. You have to pay attention to the characters and you have to ask yourself, I may not be Pharaoh. Maybe my ancestors were enslaved, but is my heart hard? We have to deal with certain realities when we sing these songs. The texts are simple, but they are deeply profound. And they're healing. They almost act like a mirror, it seems to me. It's a reflection. You sing these spirituals with this predominantly white congregation. Uh, how is that? Are people uncomfortable? I think people were comfortable, but I think they didn't realize what they were singing. It's just a fun tune with a great, with a great groove. But I think the commentary through this article, as it has been disseminated to some of the congregates at the church, I think people are having these aha moments realizing, oh, oh, you know, I think these songs can be fun, but moreover, they're they're fuel for our for our peace. You know, they they fund our imagination on how we can be together. Uh, and you know, their communal their, their communal songs, spirituals are really communal communal works. You know, they they they've enriched the lives of millions of people, but I think people don't really realize the, the, the Christian formation that's found in the idea of singing in community. You know, they're, they're theologically prophetic, they're, they're socially political, and they, they hold this moral compass in, in, in articulating, you know, our ethics, holiness, righteousness, and I think after the fact, once people sing it, then they then they lean into, okay, why are we doing this? Then they have these aha moments. I think if we approach people and and begin to like lay out 
the, the theological contracts of the piece before they sing it, I think they'll be hesitant <laughs> at first. But they hear these melodies all the time. They're pentatonic, they're accessible, and they're flavorful, they're fun. But I do think that they they pick at our consciousness. They they help us to realize Micah 6, 8, to love justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God and with each other. But when you do it, you you have to do it with some type of African-American presence or leadership, um, or, or it's gonna, it might fall on deaf ears. It's just another kind of entertainment piece when they should really be these pieces with Holy Spirit engagement. Does that, does that make sense? <laughs> well, it makes a lot of sense. You know, what, what strikes me about these songs, like you say, they're, they're communal. This is not, you know, uh, a soloist in front of a backup band singing uh, pretty melodies to, to soothe everyone. And there's also very little worship music that speaks out of the level of, of, of communal suffering that these songs do. Um, that gives them a depth that uh, that songs written by the more comfortable um, don't have. And uh, I, I don't know... Uh, how you, uh, I, I guess you just work your way into that um, with, with a group of singers. And, and, you know, how does that hang together with this mission of reconciliation that you, you, you know, you felt there in the Jones County Cemetery? There are these storytellers, these griots in, in African culture. And you have to have someone that's willing to lead the way, someone that's willing to help guide. Um, and I think choral directors, those that are leading these songs, song leaders, uh, you ha we have to be the spiritual storytellers and curators of our soul. We have to be pastoral. See, I'm, I'm a worship pastor. And so if one is not pastoral, uh, I don't, I don't think, I don't think it's really possible to guide the sheep, to guide the flock through some of these valleys and the ravines and the tributaries. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking metaphorically, um, but, but you have to have a pastor's heart. You have to have compassion for people. You can't be angry with, with your neighbor. You can't, you can't hold grudges. You see, I'm in this space of not holding grudges. I'm not trying to prove anything. I'm just trying to live it out for my own soul's sake. And I think we we try to lead by servant by, by servant leadership example. We have to be kind and considerate. When you're singing these songs next to other people that that don't look like you, you have to be kind. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for example, I just got back from Montana with a bunch of architects leading in, in worship. And we were singing Siahambe. Um, we were marching in the light of God. And we were thinking about our brothers and sisters in Ukraine who are suffering. And the Siahambe is a resistance song. 
We are marching in the light of God. We are walking in the light of God. We are praying in the light of God. And literally by the end of the weekend, we had these architects. They were singing. They were moving their hands. They were dancing, and they were they were in this in this in this kind of circle. This this the singing and dancing in this round, and and I spent the the weekend with them, and I saw the evolution of how people were being freed up in their worship. They weren't on microphones. They weren't, it was organized in a different way. There was no PowerPoint. So people had to, to read, read some of the lyrics with their hand. Then they had to put the lyrics down and then clap it. So there's this embodiment that takes place that you wouldn't get in a a rock worship and praise concert where, you know, the music is so loud, there was no amplification in the room. And so I tried to get people to sing full, full bodied, full throttle to, to get them to resonate with their, with their voices. Uh, and what it does, it produces a type of transparency that people aren't concerned about their voices trying to sound pretty. You know, one thing that, that struck me from your article I was intrigued by, um, you talked about the musical structure of the spirituals and how um, there's this debate whether they were originally uh, primarily in minor or in major. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Well, major keys and minor keys, they have the same intervallic analysis. For example, if you have a major chord, there's a perfect interval, there's a minor third, and there's a major third. And they're just inverted, looking at it from a music theory perspective. And so, so the melodies can sit in both places at the same time, where you can create a new root and create something that sounds minor or it sounds major. And so that's the beautiful balance that you have when you're, when you're singing these pentatonic melodies. You, you can create different roots to create different colors and that the music is delivered differently. They're, the, the, the musical, theoretical structure, it works like that with pentatonic scales. Uh, the form with regard to, to the form of the piece, you can, it's a simple stanza, A, A, B, A, B, or, um, or you can improvise on it. And so when people are creating and improvising on these melodies, the, the songs become, once again, community music, as James Cone speaks about this music. All black music is community music. And so people are creating, they're, they're borrowing and they're creating, they're bringing their true selves into, into the process and the performativity, if you will, of the music. And people feel it. For example, going back to what happened the Christmas Eve, I created this Doobie Brothers minute by minute group underneath the spiritual Coachella on the mountain. And this particular age group, they're familiar with the Doobie Brothers minute by minute, Michael McDonald singing. And so I, I borrowed this other accompaniment from their world and then began to uh, juxtapose this spiritual melody on top of it. So it was inviting, it was this marriage of, of different cultures musical cultures coming together, creating this new kind of sound. Now, I bet you probably haven't heard an arrangement like that before. That sounds great. Yeah. The, 
the interesting thing about these, as I was reading your piece, I kind of realized that I hadn't, I mean, there's a lot that I hadn't thought about before. Um, but one of the things is, so I, I wasn't raised Christian at all. I was, you know, that was not, I was, I'm half Jewish. I'm half sort of nothing in particular wasp. Um, and the only Christian songs that I grew up singing were Christmas carols and spirituals. Like that's the only Christian songs that were like part of my life. And it hadn't really occurred to me. And I, and it's, and it was sort of like, it's, it's one of those weird things where like, after you become a Christian, you like look back on the lyrics that you've been singing and you kind of realize what you've been singing about. But that's, I mean, the gospel kind of came into my life when I was a kid through Christmas carols and the spirituals that we would mostly sing in like, like camp and at school, um, because they were sort of like a sort of an American history thing rather than like a specifically Christian thing or something. So it was, a, you were allowed to sing it in like a secular school or a secular camp or something like that. Cause, but it's just, it's very weird in retrospect to look at why it was that you like, it was okay to sing those, but it wasn't okay to sing other Christian songs and the way that the gospel kind of creeps in that way. Well, there, you have to look at the story. I mean, and the story of enslavement is, is very American. I mean, it's capitalistic society, you know, free, free black labor in building white wealth. And so they, they don't, you know, at the core, you don't think about spirituals coming from, from a Christian, quote, Christianese type of space, because people realize that, oh, they say the slaves, they sang these songs. That's why I don't like to use that term. I like to use the term enslaved. And if you pay attention in the article, I really, I really press into that, that they were people who had been enslaved. They were slaves. Enslavement was not their identity. It was their, it was their temporary position. But I do believe that spirituals in a sneaky way, if I could use this idea, a sneaky way, they really ask the question, what is Jesus Christ for us today? And, and in the black community, it, you know, they saw themselves, these folks that were developing these pieces, they did see themselves as the bearers, the image bearers of God, that Jesus was not only Jewish, but Jesus was black too. And Jesus is considered the savior and my redeemer for all people who accept Christ. And, and that trope, that theological idea has always been at the forefront in black community. Because those who have been enslaved, they were thinking like, uh, you know, my master's a bad person and Jesus is a good person. And Jesus, Jesus suffered just like me. Jesus looked like me. Jesus was Jewish. Jesus' skin was like me. There was this identity with the folks. Believe me, that's what they thought about. They made that connection. They knew he was Jew Jewish. Yeah, and that sense of, of immediacy, right? Um, I think of we're heading into to the Passion and Easter time now uh, as this podcast airs and one of the most well-known uh, spirituals, were you there when you cruci they crucified my Lord, right? It's, it's were you there? Um, it was interesting. I was looking back um, at, I'm from the Bruderhof community, and at our earliest songbook published in Germany in 1926, and that song is already in there. Um, it's amazing how, how those songs 
kind of traveled beyond the bounds of those those enslaved people um, because the gospel was is alive in them. Yeah, and 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 the the spirituals they narrate black life alongside the life of Jesus. And and even James Cone says the blackness of Christ is not simply a statement about skin color, but rather the transcendent affirmation that God has not ever, no, not ever, left the oppressed alone in the struggle. There's something about um, the way that the lyrics of um, of spirituals work that reminds me, and this might just be because we like sang them for some reason. I feel like we sang them when I during Passover, like during the seder's. That when I was growing up, which is very weird, except that like the whole, like my whole kind of upbringing had to do with like, it was okay to have a Seder because it was also sort of about the civil rights movement. Um, that was kind of the way that, I don't know, I understood it at least. But like, there's something very similar to the way that like, when you're doing a Seder, it's very much like we were there. Like we now are, were with our ancestors at Sinai. And we're with our ancestors escaping from Egypt. And there's something so similar to the sort of um, vibe or like collapse of time that happens with the lyrics of, of spirituals, it seems to me. You know, th think about it. Just think about the name of what we've named it, spirituals. And when we think about like a theology of the Holy Spirit, for example, in the book of Acts, when the spirit came down, Acts 2, the, the disciples, they saw it, the spirit, they heard the spirit, they felt it, they experienced it. They experienced the spirit of God. And what spirituals do, Susanna, they, they allow us to live it, to experience it, to feel it. You know, the, these, these groups of songs, you know, they're not they're dubbed spirituals for a reason because the theological construct is is based out of a clear sense of of a pneumatological leaning it is a theology of the holy spirit that is embodied in the spirituals is holy spirit the holy spirit is our advocate the holy spirit is our comforter the holy spirit is our way maker in John 14, Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And in my father's house are many mansions. I go to a place and I'm not going to leave you alone. And I will not leave you comfortless. All of that is comforting. And that's what spirituals have done in the past for our ancestors. They were songs that brought us comfort. And even in Jewish traditions where there was devastation in our humanity. The melodies and some of and some of your 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 historical memory in in your bones, in the marrow of your bones, they're connected to the spirituals because they're pentatonic. They're filled with grace. They're filled with this this way forward of being comforted. There's a reason why we call them spirituals. 
this piece is just, it was so wonderful. And it, it was a sort of like little window onto something that sort of felt familiar and it made, it made them unfamiliar. And it also sort of like, it felt like it gave me permission to sing them. And I didn't even know that I needed that permission, but. You better sing girl, my brother, my (laughs) sister, y'all better sing because singing is healing for the soul. And I keep thinking about our Ukrainian brothers and sisters and the type of music that will begin to emerge from their soul journey where there's war and rumor of war. They're going to be laments and prayers laments and praise. You know, that Psalm 13, where it says, how long, O Lord, how long, how long? That's one of the Psalms in the Psalter, if you will, that mixes lament and praise together. And we all need it. Because lament plus praise equals faith, hope, and love. We got to cry with each other and we got to praise God for the opportunities to try to make things right in the world. That's why we can never give up. Does that make sense, friends? Yes, it does. So America, we've got to sing these songs because it's part of our lament and our praise, and it's going to help us to get right, to bring heaven on earth before God takes us all home. We must be forgiving. We must care about each other deeply. Invite each other in our homes, break bread together and let these spirituals water us with the word of God and the spiritual and and the spirit of God. It is healing for our souls. Thanks so much. Amen. Thank you so much, Stephen. Back at home, we, we used to sing this, 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 this little chorus, Guide Me, Jesus. It went something like this. Guide me, Jesus. Guide me, Jesus. Just guide me. Guide me, Jesus. Guide me, Jesus. Just guide Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this. And for a lot more content, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe $32 a year for the print magazine, or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That carries a whole range of benefits from free books to regular calls with editors to invitations to special events and the occasional gift. Uh, Go to plow.com to learn more. Join us next week as we talk with Esther Maria Magnus about her new book, With or Without Me, published by Plow, and it's about finding God in the face of death. And also, we then interview an Italian astronomer named Spirello Alighieri. He is, as you might be able to guess from that name, the lineal descendant of Dante Alighieri, and he's just come out with a new book about the role of astronomy in the Divine Comedy. See you then. <laughs>